0: This is Voices of COVID-19. I'm Brian Lucas, thanks for joining us. As the COVID-19 pandemic spread through the United States, we started to see horrific reports about the impact of the virus on prison populations. While at first it seemed incarcerated people were perhaps safer due to their isolation, it became apparent that once the virus got inside the walls, prison systems were ill-equipped to contain the spread or to provide proper care to patients. According to a report by the Marshall Project, a nonprofit news organization focused on reporting about criminal justice, incarcerated people have been more than three times as likely as other Americans to become infected with COVID 19, and they're also much more likely to die from the virus. As of early June 2021, nearly 400,000 people in prison had tested positive. More than 2,700 inmates have died. Now, as vaccines are helping us hopefully round the corner toward the tail end of the pandemic, prisons are facing new challenges, getting both incarcerated people and staff members vaccinated. Nicole Lewis is a reporter for the Marshall Project. During the pandemic, Nicole was able to stay in regular contact with four incarcerated individuals in institutions across the country checking in with them regularly about their experiences. She put those stories together in a remarkable piece called How We Survived COVID-19 in Prison. Using first-person accounts and beautiful illustrations, this article provides a unique, personal, and heartbreaking perspective showing how incarcerated people coped with fear, isolation, and chaos trying to survive this pandemic. I highly recommend that you read all of her work at themarshallproject.org. The stories of these individuals remind us that we're all in this together and we need to look out for each other. And I'm honored that Nicole has agreed to be a guest to talk with me about her work. Because there are so many issues related to COVID in prisons, I've broken this interview into two parts. Here's part one of our conversation. Nicole Lewis, thank you for joining me today. Great to be with you. My first question is taking you back to the beginning of the pandemic and as It was starting to make its way to the United States. And thinking about the population that you cover, when did you first realize that it was going to have a particular impact on incarcerated people in the prison system? And and how soon was that on your radar?
1: In March, of 2020, I actually published the results of a first ever political survey of people in prison, people behind bars. So I think we had some jails included too, and we heard from about 8,000 people. So if you can imagine, this is 8,000 people across the country who are incarcerated, telling us about you know who they wanna vote for, for president, uh, what issues matter the most to them. And so I had for almost a year been engaged in this really intensive reporting process, right? to hear from people behind bars. And so I would say pretty immediately, we knew that this was gonna be huge and that there were you know, people that I had spoken to that I had been in touch with, that I'd developed relationships with, that I immediately thought of. Our office went into lockdown, or I guess our office stopped coming back to work on March 9th, I believe, a few days or a few weeks ahead of New York City, you know, completely going into lockdown. And so we, we knew right off the bat, Uh, that this was going to be a big deal. And because I had just published that project, pretty quickly I could get in touch with a number of people behind bars to say, oh my God, what are you hearing and what are you seeing? Many of the state facilities started shutting down visitation. So they said, you know, none of your family members can come see you, right? No visitors, no volunteers, no people who run the prisons, you know, college programs or arts programs can come in. And so this was a real attempt at, Um, you know, limiting the spread, preventing the number of avenues for which COVID could come into prisons. Uh, But that was a pretty immediate effect and told us, you know, said, hey, uh, something's really going on here.
0: So for people who may not quite understand the risk to the prison population, can you take me through some of the elements of prisons that make something like COVID particularly dangerous and difficult to contain?
1: Sure. And so there are so many. So let me start with some of the physical ones. Prisons are often very old. Um, They're cramped. They're overcrowded. So in some cases, you may have people, you know, as many as 50 to 100 people living in an open dorm, sleeping side by side, right, in buildings that often don't have even, you know, air conditioning, let alone high-grade ventilation. The number of people in the space means that you can't really social distance. You know, if you're In a dorm, that's one thing. You've got, you know, lots of folks around you. Um, If you're in a cell, even locked in with your cellmate, there's no place to go. You know, you probably don't even have six feet of space (laughs) between the two of you. People don't have routine access to soap or to hand sanitizer. You know, soap is one of those things that you actually have to purchase at the commissary, and it can be expensive. And the sort of state-issued bar that's about as big as a hotel-sized bar of soap doesn't last everybody through the month, right? You've got to wash your hands a bunch of times. So there's other issues, just like basic hygiene. And then there are some sort of deeper, more structural things. So people in prison actually tend to be much sicker than people outside of prison. Um, They tend to have more comorbidities. Incarceration is stressful, and stress creates all kinds of health problems for people. So higher rates of um, diabetes or hypertension, uh, many people who are incarcerated may have used um, drugs in the past, may currently still be using. Right. And so for all of these reasons, that is, you know, the structural sort of physical stuff aside, if people who are incarcerated were to get sick with COVID, the outcomes also could be much, much worse. There was a real, in the beginning, sort of fear there that if the virus makes its way in, it could have really devastating consequences for people behind bars.
0: Another thing that struck me was the description of what healthcare is like under normal times in the prison system.
1: Yes, of course. This is, throughout all of my reporting, one of the the biggest, um, the most sort of repeated things that came up time and time again. So in the best of circumstances, right, people do not have access to adequate healthcare. And there are dozens of lawsuits across the country where incarcerated people have alleged that they've been neglected, mistreated, right? Um, Simple problems that they have just are not taken seriously or treated. I heard from so many people, pretty much everyone was saying. You know, if we're sick, if we feel bad at all, we go to the nurse and they just give us ibuprofen and send us on our way. And so I can't even tell you how many people told me that everything from toothaches to, you know, more serious infections are just being treated this way.
0: And they get charged $5 for the ibuprofen, one person said.
1: That's right. In some cases, the copay is much higher than that. So, yeah.
0: So then you started following four people in particular that you did an article about that was just a beautiful article. Beautiful. (laughs) in a heartbreaking way, I will say. But the way that you did it, I thought, was was incredible. Talk to me about following four people on this journey through COVID. And some of them got COVID. Some of them had people around them die. What was it like trying to follow individuals through this, through a very personal story in a very chaotic time?
1: Yeah, incredibly tough, incredibly heartbreaking, too. So, you know, we kind of knew when we started that we we're gonna need to put a real human face on this issue. Prisons are out of sight, out of mind by design, and so many people are just not thinking about folks who are behind bars. And so we said, well, what's the best way to really show to the public and explain what this really means for incarcerated people? And so we thought we we gotta really hear directly from people um, in prison. We gotta tell their stories, you know, from their vantage point. Really, I started reaching out to people over um, prison email systems, you know, every week um, kind of checking in with folks that I had developed a relationship with to say, Hey, you know, tell me what's going on. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? You're our eyes and ears. You're our window into the system that doesn't want us to know what's happening to you. Many of the official channels for sharing information about the number of cases, right? we um, were slow or limited. We just weren't getting a lot of info. So we knew we needed to go directly to people behind bars. And so, you know, at times we'd lose touch. Um, there were so many moments where I just felt like, goodness gracious, I can't, I can't ask this person to tell me what's going on right there in the throes of a fight for their lives. But I hung in there, they hung in there with me, you know, many weeks I'd just, we'd just be exchanging um, updates on what's going on inside and outside, and um, over time, you know, we built these narratives that kind of took us through the peaks, the ups and downs of the pandemic. Um, and I felt like the decision to to illustrate them, you know, it makes it more real. Um, it allows you to kind of see people as people, um, to remember that we're not just talking about like numbers or statistics or right? we're, we're talking about human beings. But yeah, it was challenging. It's, you know, heartbreaking. Many of the folks I'm still in touch with, I I mailed them all the the piece, you know, we printed it and mailed it and, and they were ecstatic, right? They're so happy to know that they were part of showing the world just how bad it was in there, right? That their voices can have an impact, can make a difference. And I think in some ways that can give people a sense of sort of purpose that their suffering or their experience wasn't all just for nothing, but there's actually something good that could come out of it. That people are, you know, tuned in; that they care; that they may now make a decision about, you know, how to support incarcerated people in a way that they wouldn't have before. And so, I think now that the pandemic is sort of waning and we're able to keep keep in touch, um, that there's a sense of, of just meaning here, um, meaning out of misery. I think is, is one of the ways I, I often look at it.
0: As somebody who was probably familiar with the conditions inside prisons going into this were there still things that you heard from them that shocked you can you think of a couple of details that surprised even you uh, as somebody who who would know how difficult it would be inside
1: Yeah I mean I think the biggest thing out of everything I never failed to be shocked by just how sort of um needlessly and senselessly like punitive the system is that's something that always gets me so for a simple example, I heard from, you know, different people in different states that were saying we started making masks out of T-shirts because, you know, they weren't issuing us enough masks. And we were learning from the news that masks were important, right? And so we're doing everything we can to try to keep ourselves safe. And so T-shirt masks to many corrections officers are seen as contraband. So the masks get taken away and thrown away, and then people get written up right, for just exercising just some sort of basic creativity and ingenuity to try to stop the spread overall. right? So this is putting a mask on is something that directly benefits correctional officers as well who are at risk of contracting COVID. And so there are just kinds of examples like that that that, that really shocked me. I saw some reports of people who were Found dead in their cells, right? That were on quarantine, under watch, because they were infected um, and very sick. And the state said, "We are going to monitor these people every day. We're going to make sure that they're okay, and we'll make the necessary transfers out to hospitals if we need to." And in some cases, right, people didn't make it through the night, and they got they went many days without being found. And you just think, how can that be possible? Uh, you have one job, right? One sort of role to take care of these people in your custody. Other things, uh, you know, around decision-making. I did a little bit of reporting on the federal system and I was hearing from people that they were being put in quarantine with multiple people. So there'd be, you know, five or six people to a quarantine and then someone would test positive and the quarantine would start all over again. And I just think, wait a minute, we have established science and protocols about what isolation actually means. So why are we doing it like this? And so those are just a few of the examples of like, you know, prison is, is bad, but you, you know, when you see it this starkly, it, it just, it really kind of blows your mind.
0: A couple of things that jumped out at me, there was an account of, I think the the woman that you were following saying that they were social isolating in the dining room and then they got to where they were sleeping and their beds were two feet apart. And she asked if they could go head to toe and they said no.
1: That's right. Just to
0: try to separate themselves a little bit more.
1: Real commitment to the sort of carceral policy um, that in examples like that, where you see, you know, clearly they're trying to, they're sort of not as interested in making decisions that would keep people safe so much as maintaining a sense of order and control.
0: The other one that really... That broke my heart. And maybe you can tell the story of the prisoner who his cellmate next door, his mother was on a ventilator and they were trying to get him a chance to say goodbye.
1: Yes. So this was in Sing Sing Prison. And this is Bruce Bryant's neighbor. You have to remember that everybody who's incarcerated, many people have connections to somebody outside. And so in New York, at the start of the pandemic, you know, in March through May, the numbers, the caseload was really, really bad outside of prison. And so, you know, his mother gets sick and he's trying, you know, to say she's hospitalized. This could be the last chance that I could see her ever in my life. Can I just get to a video kiosk? Can you arrange a visit so that I can say goodbye, see my mother for the last time? And you know, eventually the system says, sure. Yes. Okay. But it was too late. And so he didn't get to have that closure with his mom. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking.
0: And I was also struck by the person that you were interviewing saying that he kept trying to check in with his friend afterwards. And it showed the humanity among the incarcerated individuals looking out for each other's well-being during the, that. It was, it was remarkable. I thought.
1: That's right. I mean, many people develop lifelong friendships. And so, you know, I think Bruce was really clear to say, you know, we are all we have in here. And so we got to stick together.
0: The other interesting thing I thought was the relationship with the the guards. It never struck me before that in a prison, the guards were the weak link in terms of bringing the virus in, that the prison population wasn't going to, unless I guess new new prisoners were coming in or something, but that the guards were really the ground zero for preventing the virus from coming in. But it sounded like a lot of the guards were refusing to wear masks and things like that. Is this an indication of a greater problem? Is, was this surprising to you?
1: You know, it, it sort of was surprising because on the one hand, it was very clear to us that guards were always going to be the link, right? Visitors, again, were shut out, volunteers shut out. And so the only people who could come in and out of the prison are the people who work there. So they were always at risk of kind of bringing it in. But what's surprising about it is that, you know, it's their health and well being too. And so that's the part where it starts to sort of not make as much sense. You're saying, well, here's someone who's going into a facility in which you can't social distance, people are sick, this virus could spread. And so why not really go above and beyond to make sure that you don't get sick, you don't take the virus home, right? That, that you're able to really contain it. And so that's the part that I think even after all of my reporting, you know, I've been reporting on vaccination efforts as well, Um, it still perplexes me. I still find it a little bit confusing as to why there was not as much cooperation by correctional officers and by, you know, higher level staff as well. Um, I still hear from people that um, many of the officers, you know, refuse to wear masks. And so anytime I have a conversation with an incarcerated person who's thinking about, you know, should I get vaccinated? What to do? I don't, you know, I don't know what to think. I always say to them, you know, hey, it seems like vaccination is kind of your best bet to protect yourself against correctional officers who are yet unvaccinated and refusing to wear masks, right? And so you're at a particular risk because you can't actually avoid them. You can't actually limit the amount of contact you have. You're, you're vulnerable.
0: One of the things about COVID that has struck me throughout is the way that it has showcased some of the problems that our society is facing overall in terms of issues with mental health and isolation, misinformation, and the division. And, and it seemed to me that we had two possible paths when this hit. We were either going to come together and fight this and remember that we share a humanity, or we were going to separate. And I think we've seen both, to be honest. I think that we've seen some things, some people really rise together and, and battle this together. But we've also seen this division. And it seems to me that prison systems reflect a lot of society's problems, but maybe on steroids even, in terms of the problems with isolation and the problems of misinformation where, where you really have your information cut off in many ways. What are your thoughts about that? What did you learn from the people that you were following that show some of the things that we need to address long after COVID?
1: Such a great question. I mean, really, prison is a microcosm of our larger society, right? And so if you just even think about who is there a lot of the times it's people that we've said we don't want to deal with right we don't have solutions to the problems that they face or their communities of people that we have deemed lesser than less deserving undesirable and in some ways are saying we're actually not interested in spending some of our other more precious quote unquote resources on you we're just going to sort of Throw you into a cell and call it a day. It's always important for me to point out, even that is still very expensive. So, in the end, you know, what does it really get us? But when it comes to misinformation and when it comes to kind of decision, you know, pro human decision making, right? I think we saw that really very starkly, very clearly in prisons. So, prisons are a place where people don't have unfettered access to the outside world, to the internet, Um, what they're able to receive in terms of materials, periodicals is tightly controlled. Their mail is even tightly controlled. Their phone conversations are monitored. People do have access to the news. So often some of the first ways that incarcerated people heard about coronavirus uh, was through just watching the news. But it meant that there was, they had information and the system itself hadn't responded to say, yes, there's a pandemic and here's the steps we're taking. So there was a big gap, a big lag. And I think we saw that Very clearly on the outside as well, where public officials, in one instance, the president seemed to know that this virus was airborne well before the public did, right? And so I think, you know, that is so mirrored behind bars. So incarcerated people knew, hey, there's something going on well before they were ever informed about the steps that people were taking, you know, what it meant. And I think right inside of that lag, of that gap, is where all of the misinformation, the panic, the fear, the confusion really sets in. You give people scary news, you don't tell them how you're gonna respond to it, right? They start coming up with theories of their own, with ideas of their own. They start searching, you know, for, for information that would help them deal with how anxiety producing it is. And so we definitely saw that, you know, both inside and outside. So in some cases I was hearing that, you know, family members were reading things on Facebook groups. Um, and then telling their incarcerated loved ones what they're reading and then that information just spreads like wildfire, right? Because they're, again, they just simply don't have actual concrete details about what the system's gonna do, how they're gonna be taken care of. And so I think if there is one lesson that, that I have taken away and that I hope that we all take away, it's that we you really have to be proactive and act quickly and not allow that sort of time for people to just stew in their emotions, right? fear in the face of a very scary situation makes sense. And I think it becomes really fertile ground for conspiracy theories or just ideas that have been long debunked for sort of panic to set in. And it's very, very difficult as, you know, we're finding on the outside and as officials are finding on the inside, it's very, very difficult to walk things back. So once people have a sense of, you know, they have an idea that feels maybe more soothing to them, it's very difficult to supplant that idea with facts and information, right? It's just hard. They've, they've figured out what makes sense and they're just going to go with that.
0: The other thing that seemed to exacerbate the situation was that I think isolation is is a hallmark of COVID for everybody, but in the prison population, The threat of, hey, I'm going to tell somebody that I seem to be having a little cough, oh, they're going to put me in isolation, seemed to be such a discouragement to containing and taking proper steps. There was that one person who said, not only will I have to go to isolation, but when you go to isolation, you lose all of your personal belongings. That's just the way that it works. There's so much disincentive to even raise your hand and say, hey, you know, I'm not feeling well. Maybe for the greater good, I should be, you know, separated from the group. It, it just wasn't a very good option.
1: Yeah, such a good point. I mean, I think in many places, if you said you were sick, or if you tested positive, you would be sent to solitary confinement, right? That was the prison system's way of dealing with trying to control the spread. And so we know that solitary confinement is devastating to people, right? That it causes profound and sometimes lasting changes into people's mental health. And so imagine being deathly ill being definitely oh, with a virus we don't yet know how to treat, with a virus that we don't yet know much about, that can progress very dramatically for some and and not so you know badly for others. So on top of all of that, you know you're going to be sent to solitary confinement. Yeah, it's a huge disincentive. You know why would you say anything? And so there are many instances or many cases in which you know people kept quiet, didn't speak up, um, and it meant that the virus was able to spread. And I think you know it just points out that humans are such social creatures, right? It is part of the reason we incarcerate people when they do something bad. You know, that's part of the punishment, being separated from others, being separated from the people that you love. Like right? that's sort of some of the carceral logic here. And so if you can imagine, it's it's just really compounded behind bars, right? You're already separate But there are still so many levels of separation, right? It it can get worse.
0: I think one of the people you interviewed also made this analogy of that there's pressure inside the prison system all the time, but this led that pressure to increase. And it was almost this worry that the pipes were going to burst. Are you almost surprised that we didn't have major, like, you know, obviously a lot of people got sick. A lot of people died But it almost seemed like it was a powder keg waiting to erupt at a certain point, considering some of the tales and the the stresses and the inhumanity that that was on display.
1: Yeah, you know, I I am a little bit surprised, but as soon as I have that thought to say, I'm surprised it kind of, I mean, it's very bad, but I'm a little bit surprised that it wasn't worse in the sense of like people, you know, rebelling or uprisings or, you know, violence or right that one of the stories I did at the beginning of the pandemic was actually talking to family members of the incarcerated. And several people brought up this fear that, you know, they're separated from their loved ones. They're not given any information. It's very scary. And so there was this sort of concern amongst family members on the outside that there could be, you know, violence on the horizon. And and we didn't quite see that happen. We saw some small incidents um, in some jails, you know, where people were speaking out because they felt like they were not being heard and their needs were not being met. Um, But we didn't see it on a large scale. And one of the things I think about a lot, though, and having reported and sort of followed people over the course of many months while the pandemic was unfolding, is actually just how much incarcerated people have had to learn to be resilient and find ways to be okay in the face of extraordinary adversity. Some people maybe are not coping nearly as well, right? There's other issues that come along with all of the pressure and stress they've been under, but people who've done long stints of time, you know, it's like, they just sort of chalk this up to like, yet another thing they have to deal with on the laundry long list of things they've dealt with in prison. And so if they make it through, you know, they know that in some ways they're, they're They're better off to face whatever kind of comes next. And in some cases, right, it's very clear to me that what I'm actually seeing or what I'm looking at is resignation, that, you know, what difference does it make? Why fight? Why push? Um, It doesn't matter. We're already at the bottom and, you know, nobody cares. And so there's some way that there's a heaviness, I think, that also sits on people.
0: That willingness to push forward and to persevere in the face of some of these absurdities. There was one person who said that they were told to gargle with soap and make toilet paper masks. And you're thinking this is how we're responding to a pandemic.
1: That's right. And I should say, you know, she told me this. The woman uh, in the story, her name is Jennifer Graves, and so I said, "Well, Jennifer, did, did did anybody make toilet paper masks?" You know, and she wrote me back, and she said, "No, Nicole. Of course not. We thought it was silly. Don't you think it's silly?" You know, and it just shows you that, like, even in the face of this, it's scary, right? You're you're being given bad information. There's still a sort of like lightness and levity there, and a, and a clarity about what you know, she needed to do to take care of herself and and what she wouldn't do.
0: In the next episode of Voices of COVID-19, we'll continue our conversation with Nicole Lewis, discussing incarceration trends in the wake of the pandemic, the need for better mental health care in prisons, and reasons why some incarcerated people are hesitant to receive the vaccine.
1: And there's just this past history of experiments and just using incarcerated people to advance science for people on the outside. But more importantly, people are saying that, you know, they deal with the nurses, the doctors, the medical staff on a daily basis. Based on those interactions, they don't feel confident. And some people have been said, you know, I'm worried that if I have a bad or adverse reaction from the vaccine, but I'd be left to like languish in my cell um, with no support. And so I think it's those present time, you know, sort of more daily interactions that that really drive that hesitancy up.
0: Voices of COVID-19 is an attempt to document the thoughts and feelings of people who are perhaps outside the limelight to get personal reflections on how a pandemic impacts all of our lives. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and be considerate of each other. And we'll get through this together.